0: here we are. If you haven't gotten, and I think uh, Tim passed out uh, some handouts that I have just with a few references that we might be looking at today. Um, If you haven't gotten one of those, make sure that you grab one on the way in. Uh, But today we're talking about prayer as a part of worship. Now, this has been a challenging study for me uh, all week, Uh, and uh, if my conversations with folks in the church through the years hold true, I would imagine just about any time we, we uh, study prayer and we talk about prayer and think about prayer, uh, it's personally challenging to us. Uh, a lot of times we we look at uh, the Bible's injunctions to pray and and the benefit of prayer and the blessing of prayer, and the thing that we come away with very often is, oh my, I'm not praying as much or as well as I ought to, and it can be uh, a blow to our our personal spiritual walk to think i 'm not meeting up to these standards, and my goal today hopefully uh, is not to give you uh, another list of standards that you don 't meet up to, but encourage us uh, to see what a blessing it is to be able to pray and, and to come to the Lord in prayer, and specifically for us to think about prayer in the context of corporate worship, uh, which we 'll discuss a little bit of the differences between well what 's the difference between your own private prayer uh, and our public gathered prayer, but just by way of an an introduction, I think it's interesting to think about prayer in worship uh, contrasted to our discussion last week. Obviously, last week, if you were here, uh, we were talking about songs of praise and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and that is the element of worship that, uh, of any of them, uh, in, in modern evangelical churches, that is the one that is identified with corporate worship. You know, you sometimes have your worship pastor and he's the guy who leads the singing. Uh, and we think of the time of praise and worship and then the sermon. And, and we sometimes, uh, you know, think that we stop worshiping when the pastor starts speaking or when somebody's praying. We're engaged in praise, um, but prayer in many evangelical churches is taking more and more of a backseat. And so prayer is almost this element that we think of, well, that's your, that's your personal time with the Lord. That's what you do Privately. Uh, every morning when you, when you have your devotions, you spend some time reading God's word and praying, uh, and it fits in corporate worship, but it doesn't have nearly the same emphasis in corporate worship that it used to. Uh, I was listening to Carl Robbins this week, teaching on prayer. He's a pastor in Woodruff Road, PCA, somewhere in the south. Um, and his, his estimation is that uh, a lot of this change where prayer is de emphasized in corporate worship in many churches today comes about uh, in the desire to have a seeker-sensitive sort of worship. Uh, This idea that, well, how do you grow your church in numbers? And, and, you know, we think about the church growth phenomenon that happened over the last few decades, and everybody's emphasizing, well, how do you draw in non-believers? How do you draw in people that aren't used to being in church? Well, you give them what they want, and you get rid of what they're uncomfortable with. And so what do they what do they like? What do they know? Well, they know performance, and so in a sense you, you take corporate singing away from the congregation and you give a, a praise band or a choir or someone who does all that for you, and unbelievers specifically are uncomfortable with long extended prayers of petition, and so you get rid of those. Uh, and you relegate that to, well, that's what you do in your own private time. And you also see this emphasis where prayer doesn't stand alone. Uh, Maybe you've been in one of those services, and any time there's a prayer, uh, there is the soft piano and strings music on the keyboard behind the person who's praying. And it it gives you, you know, it's supposed to be this sort of atmosphere, but it's almost this sense that prayer can't just stand by itself in the gathered worship of the church. There's got to be something else accompanying it to to entertain us or to move us, uh, and it's this sense that we're not satisfied with just plain old prayer before the Lord in the church. Uh, You can attend any number of churches and and see that happen. And hopefully I'm not just pointing the the finger uh, at those out there, but one of the things that I often hear from folks who visit our church or churches like ours uh, is that they come away saying, wow, you you folks pray a lot during your service. And it's more liturgical, and we have different forms of prayer. We still have that long Uh, intercessory prayer uh, before the sermon, Uh, and there is an emphasis on prayer, Um, and even though it might not be in keeping with the taste of our age, it's certainly in keeping with the emphasis of Scripture. Uh, What you see is you you could read through the book of Acts and see that one of the hallmarks of the church is that the believers gathered together, and when they gathered together almost everywhere, they pray. Uh, It shows up all over the place. Uh, Consider um, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, this is after Peter's sermon at Pentecost. We see in verses 41 uh, and uh, 42, it says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Interestingly, it doesn't say that they devoted themselves to singing praise, which is an important part of corporate worship and one of these things that we identify with corporate worship, but it does say that they devoted themselves to prayer. And on and on you see that uh, through, uh, especially the book of Acts. Flip over to um, chapter 6, another place where we see prayer uh, as very important in the church. It says in uh, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were, not, were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So the point there is not that diaconal service or serving those who are in need, it's not that that is unimportant in the church, but that the ministry of the apostles being devoted to the ministry of preaching and prayer, and it's interesting the way that that happens. The first time it mentions... Uh, In um, verse 2, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They only mention one thing. And then later in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. They saw those almost as conjoined. So we can think of verse 2 as a a larger heading, preaching the word, and then secondly, prayer and the ministry of the word. And, And these things go together in the apostolic ministry. It's so important that they ought to have people who are devoted to just these things, to praying for the congregation. Uh, We would imagine leading them in prayer, teaching them how to pray, gathering the people for prayer. It is of the utmost importance everywhere in Acts that the people pray. And you could go through uh, the rest of the book. We won't do that. Uh, But just a a quick glance through in chapter 1. The apostles and the disciples are gathered together, and they're waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and they are praying. That's what they do to occupy their time while they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. They're sending up petitions to the Lord. Chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, they are praying together. Chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the temple at the hour of prayer, which is interesting that you never find uh, mention of Christians engaging in temple sacrifice after the coming of Christ, but you do still see them going as long as they're identified with the Jewish people and as long as they're allowed to get in before the, the uh, sect of Christianity is split off by the Jews, you see them going up to pray. They still engaged in worship with the gathered people as much as they could, and so they went up at the hour of prayer. Chapter 4, uh, the disciples gather together to pray, uh, and uh, after Peter and John are released, there's this amazing prayer. Uh, they've been praying for them while they were... Uh, held captive and then released by the the Jews and the Sanhedrin, and they offer this prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord. We see the same thing. When persecution happens in the church, prayer breaks out. Find that in chapter 12. Peter's arrested. It said Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And then he's released by the angel of the Lord. You know that story where uh, Peter thinks it's just a dream, and suddenly he comes to his senses, and he's outside of the prison? Uh, He's in the city streets, and he realizes that the angel of the Lord has worked uh, through the prayers of the saints. And he shows up uh, at uh, the place that the disciples are gathered, and he walks in on a prayer meeting. They've been praying for him, and Rhoda goes to the door and says, Oh, I I thought it was Peter, but I closed the door. It couldn't possibly be him. But they're praying for Peter. This is what they do when, uh, when people are persecuted. In chapter 16, Paul and Silas are imprisoned. They stay up all night singing praises to the Lord and praying to God. That's what they do, and it's not private prayer. It says in chapter 16 that they were praying, and all the other prisoners heard them, uh, that they use this as not only praying out loud, but as ministry to the ones who are around them. And, of course, we know the, the Philippian jailer and the, and the bonds are broken and all these things. Uh, chapter 20, Paul meets with the Ephesian elders. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, and after speaking with them, Uh, they all kneel down on the beach together and they pray. This is how they close their time together with corporate prayer. So, uh, on and on we could go. Prayer is important to Christians. It's the lifeblood of the gathered church. Uh, And you could have an even more extensive study by looking through the the letters of Paul. If you're looking for a great resource on how to grow in your own prayer life, let me recommend to you a a more contemporary book. There are really good ones like Matthew Henry's uh, A Method for Prayer, uh, and, of course, the, the catechisms and confessions tell us a lot about how to pray. But D.A. Carson wrote a wonderful book, and it's changed titles several times. I think the one that's currently being uh, published under is Praying with Paul, a call to spiritual reformation. And in that book, D.A. Carson basically goes through all of Paul's letters, and he, he takes out all of the prayers and he analyzes them. Uh, and so he's just looking at all of the prayers of Paul in the New Testament and it is a rich, wonderful study, and we'll pay dividends if you, if you go through that, just to see what were the things that were important to Paul uh, to pray about. How did he pray for the church? How did he ask the church to pray for him? What importance did prayer have uh, in the life of the church and in Paul? So uh, let me ask you a question before we, we move on. We've seen uh, through Acts that prayer ought to be central in the church. You can find that all throughout Scripture in the gathering of God's people. And I've also mentioned that prayer seems to be on the decline in many churches, and certainly in our own church there are lots of things that we could do better. I know that a lot of you have been in other churches, you spent a lot of time here, so let me ask a question uh, in sort of two headings. First, um, what is it that keeps prayer from being more central in the worship of many churches? So that's a question for sort of broad evangelicalism. What's our problem with prayer in contemporary Christianity, uh, and then we're going to turn the finger in on ourselves and say, well, well, where do we fall short uh, in prayer? So what about that first one? And sort of, as you think about broader evangelicalism, as you, you've traveled through different churches and visited with people and you've seen uh, more prayer or less prayer in some churches, what do you think is it that keeps us from having the same kind of emphasis that the early church had on prayer, where we're just Constantly always engaging in prayer and it, and it's this lifeblood and it's this energizing thing that happens in the church. What do you think? Teresa? I think ritualism is also um, um, holds back a of How so? Ritualism holds back prayer? How so? Yeah. Religion. Sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. hmm Whose who's definition of God? The early Christians. Early Christians? No, I, I think we believe in the same God and, and we worship the same God. I think you do have a point, though, that, that this idea of, as the church goes on through history, we gather um, some forms, uh, and, and sometimes those liturgical forms if we're not in tune with what's actually happening there, they have the tendency in each of our hearts to just become traditionalism. You know, and so you've got, and and there are certain churches that we would think of as not gospel preaching churches, um, but their liturgy has so much gospel in it that it's amazing sometimes that people can be raised in these churches and go through the liturgy week after week after week, and come away and say, I never heard the gospel. You prayed the gospel every week of your life, and it's there, but so often it does. It, it becomes, well, here's this thing that I'm doing, and I'm not really engaged with it because it's just, you know, I, I open my bulletin and it's there. And I read the words, and at the end I go home and say, oh, that was nice. I, I did something traditional this week, I, I did something ritualistic. So that's a good point that, that uh, when those forms become just another thing that we do, well why why have that sort of prayer if it's just going through the steps and so our estimation is lowered yeah behind you I'm sorry your first name again Dave, Dave. yeah Yeah, um, so, so sort of whole person spiritual disciplines gathered with the church. That's another thing that, uh, well, we see fasting as, corporate fasting at least, is, well, that's what the Catholics do during Lent, or that's what the so-and-sos do during whenever. And again, it's this sort of ritualistic thing, and we're not sure why, but uh, folks, I-, I don't know if you're aware, and, and uh, you know, one of the elements of worship that the Westminster lists is corporate fasts. Uh, In in due season, not in the same way that we would say, okay, for this season every year it is a religious thing that everybody must fast, but there are natural seasons in the life of the church where things happen where the proper response is fasting and lamentation and crying out to the Lord. Uh, And we we have the freedom in Christ to do that in worship without making it something where we're just making somebody else do something. Uh yeah, and, and there's not a lot of talk of fasting and its connection with prayer uh in the modern church. Thank you. Greg. Uh, you know, thinking of something that might address both of your questions um, you know, in our jobs and in our entertainment is there's an instant gratification. Oh. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, this, um, it's this self-feeding sort of feedback loop where our, our personal prayer lives are declining, and so we have no taste for prayer when we gather together with God's people. Uh, and we have no taste for prayer when we gather to God, together with God's people, and so our personal prayer lives decline, and, and they emphasize one another. Uh, but, uh, yeah, to be prepared for, uh, for prayer together with God's people... Of requires that we are used to praying and sitting before the Lord and pouring out our hearts. And it happens differently in corporate worship, but there's a there's a lot of connection there. Good. Landon, sort of big picture or or the second one if you'd rather so yeah I think it's important probably to make a distinction between the Western church and yep. the rest of the world. And you I you're implicitly asking about prayer decline in the Western church. Yes. Yeah. That's a good point. Mm. You
1: know, if you just compare the fervency of the of the early church compared to us in the in the United States that sense of need and dependence on God, you know, we're we all material we're
0: in a materialistic society, we have everything we need. Yeah. Why do we really need to pray so fervently? Oh, absolutely. I had a friend in seminary from Nigeria and he was a pastor there and had done some seminary studies and was now at Gordon-Conwell doing more seminary studies, and he said that his, uh, he's found that that same sort of thing, his own prayer life here, just going through his normal day of study was totally different because in Nigeria, if the electric came on, you don't know how long it was going to stay on. Oh, Lord, help me to get this paper done while I have electricity to run my computer. And here, well, of course the electric's going to be on. You know, we we call uh, National Grid and complain if it goes out for 20 minutes. what's wrong with this situation here? And so just this sense of need, maybe entitlement also. Uh, But yeah, this idea that in in the Western church we we have a lot of things, and it's easy to overlook uh, the gifts that we have that actually come from the Lord and our dependence upon him. Good, good. Mike? Yeah. And it's take work if you're playing along with the person leading in prayer to be listening and to just in your mind,
1: you know, saying, you know, basically say that mm-hmm. I agree with that. Yeah.
0: And again, a lot of these things feed off of our private and our public prayer life. We've all had those moments where you're in a quiet room all by yourself and your mind is wandering when you're trying to pray. Well, put you in a room full of other people who are shuffling and rustling and and all these other things and and you find it hard to center your mind. Well, when you're in your own personal prayer closet, that's okay. Your mind wanders, bring it back and keep praying. Uh, When you're here and your mind wanders, the prayer is gone without you. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and then you have to catch up to where, to where it is. And so that's a challenge. Yeah, all right. So, so let's narrow that focus uh, and think just about ourselves. Uh, and I'm going to brace myself. Um, what are some of the failings in our own church that we find? Why is, and, and maybe I'm assuming uh, that it's not this life-giving thing, but I know the way that I operate sometimes when I'm not preaching and not leading the prayer in my mind, can tend to wander and I can tend to be thinking about other things and, and all these other things can distract me um, and, and prayer can sometimes be this thing that I'm not really engaged in. So what are the faults of, of our church, particularly in prayer? What do you think? Crickets. Cynthia. Yes, the bold first. Go for it.
1: Mhm.
0: Sure. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's time for the prayer of confession. Here are the words. Now we have some quiet time, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. And maybe that time is too long. Maybe it's too short. Maybe it's yeah. And fitting into the the routine of the church. Thank you. Other thoughts, Greg? Absolutely. Did you notice in that first passage we read from Acts, um, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking bread and and to prayers. Um, And how often do we pray, and it's time for the pastoral prayer, uh, and I pray for so-and-so and and, and the thing that's going on with them and and somebody sitting in the congregation going, who's that? How long have they been in our church? I I I haven't even met these people yet. Um, And certainly we can add our amen that the Lord would would work and he would hear the prayers of his people. But yeah, our lack of fellowship sometimes can can hold us back in in praying fervently and being engaged in, in the prayer that's being offered. Bill, you had your hand up.
1: Well, I was just thinking that sometimes, and I guess I'm building on what's been said already, you've got to be careful with the growth situations. I found that when I'm trying to go through a passage and I've learned,
0: mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So here are a few things that I wrote down: um, problems in prayer, lack of individual prayer disciplines, we've mentioned that already, uh, poor prayers from those who lead. I'll take the blame, I'll, I'll uh, not be, uh, you know, I'll, I'll criticize myself on that one. Thank you. Um, Yeah, there's a carefulness. So here's what it says in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Well, there is an encouragement for many pastors. Uh, Let your words be few and don't be rash. Um, But there is, if I can be honest, there's a certain pressure for leadership that when you've begun that intercessory prayer, you've got to keep going. Uh, And, you know, it's almost that fear of radio silence that, again, if you're in your own private prayer closet, you pray and you stop and you marinate and you wait and then you keep praying some more. Well, if I were to stop in the middle of that prayer for 30 seconds, everybody would, what's going on? That would be more distracting, I think, sometimes. Um, and so, yeah, there, there's trying to, to figure those things out in distraction. Uh, and, and folks, you know, the, again, the point is not to make us feel beat up. Hey, how was Sunday school today? Oh, it was terrible. Uh, the pastor told us how bad we are uh, at praying. Uh, but the point is to see that, that prayer in the early church uh, was vital and exhilarating, uh, and the scriptures, I think, still hold out that it can be that same thing for us. And so I want to think, with the time that we have left, uh, in, in three sort of categories Uh, about our prayer and our prayer together. One, uh, what's happening when we pray? What are we doing? What is God doing? What's happening? What are we saying by the act of praying together? So what happens when we pray? Uh, What's different about corporate prayer as opposed to private prayer? And what must we all do to worship God well through prayer? So let's start with that first one. What's happening when we pray? Rob. Rob. Okay, what's not happening when we pray? Right. Right. Yeah. Dear God, aren't you glad that I thought of a way for you to help me out? Yeah, yep, yeah. So we're not counseling the Lord, we're not teaching him, we're not giving him uh, sort of advice that he needs to follow and, and roping him in to doing our bidding. with thankfulness yeah Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right, right, yeah, you don't guard that peace, but the the peace of God guards you good, good Dave, so what's happening when we pray? Good. So obviously, and we've mentioned already, that in our prayer, we're often making requests. And that's what we think of sometimes as the cornerstone of prayer is asking God to do something. Um, One important element of prayer is supplication. We're asking God to intervene and to move. Uh, But there's more, so grab your handout that I've given you. I think the shorter catechism, question 98, is a great, succinct answer to this question of, well, what is prayer? What are we doing Here's what it says, what is prayer? Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. So three things there that we see, and you might be able to find more. We offer our desires, so that is the request portion. We confess our sins, we acknowledge his mercies. That's adding thankfulness. To our prayer we say this is what the lord has done this is who the lord is and anytime you set out to do those things through the merit of jesus you are praying whether you come away saying man that was a bad prayer that was a good prayer it was i, I could have done better or i could have prayed longer or i could have been more uh, you know focused in my prayer you're praying that's what it is uh, whether it we're private prayer or public prayer bill Right I
1: always
0: thought the first one be adoration. Okay, yep, yeah, um, and so there are different ways to to frame uh, what we should do in prayer, and one of the, the ways to do that is that fourfold you think of the, the acronym acts, right adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. yeah, um, and and so in this yeah, the right, the other other three are there, um, and maybe it fits under this category of. Um, acknowledgment of His mercies, but you're right. It, it doesn't say um, that we begin with uh, with just adoring the Lord for who He is and uh, and coming before Him and being in awe of Him. That's a part of prayer as well. God's glory be, uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. So it, it strictly, sorry. Go ahead, Cynthia. <clears throat> Yeah, and and it could be. Um, So one of, and I don't know if this is the original um, source of this, but one of the places that we first find this um, this acts acronym for prayer is in Matthew Henry's a method for prayer. Uh, Henry came after uh, the Westminster, and so there might have been some development, and and we shouldn't expect. Okay, if the Westminster is going to talk about prayer, it has to it has to get our. Four categories, but I think it's all rolled in there together. What do we desire? Uh, well, hopefully our desires are tuned to the Lord. Uh, so this is part of the sanctification of God's people as we go to God's Word. You know, it talks about uh, offering up our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will. So there's the safeguard. You hear that old uh, that old saying? Well, you know, you don't just go to God and ask for a Ferrari. Uh, that, that's not praying for things according to his will, that's just praying for what you want. Well, our, our desires are to be attuned by God's will. How do we learn what God's will is? Well, it's by studying his word and what he's revealed of himself and what he's told us about himself. And so we go shaped by what God tells us is good for us, and we see that reflected in our lives and our needs, and then we go to the Lord. And one of the great needs that we have, one of the desires we ought to have, is to glorify God. That ought to be one of our prayers, one of our desires before the Lord. Help me to glorify you. Help me to be in awe of you. I think the psalmist says somewhere, um, no, uh, forget it. I won't get it right, and I'll butcher it, so I'd rather not. Um, But yeah, that's exactly right. So part of our desire is is to see God glorified. Rob, you had your hand up? And the psalms are the perfect example of this. As far as I know, there's only one psalm that begins and ends in total despair, uh, that doesn't have an uptick at the end. But what we normally see in the psalms, and again, interesting to think of prayer in connection to praise, that these psalms are prayer songs, Uh, that that they're songs to the Lord, songs of prayer, but they're also songs of, of praise and prayer together, and very often you'll see the psalmist begin talking about his needs and struggles and afflictions, and by the end, but, oh, Lord, I will praise you. Uh, even in the midst of that. It doesn't mean that in your prayer you have to be uh, dishonest. It doesn't mean that you have to say, you know, I- I'm, I'm really glad that this thing happened that I didn't want to happen. You can begin with honesty if that's where you are and pouring out your desires and praying, oh, Lord, change my heart, that I would be able to do what the psalmist does to turn and thank you even for these things. Help me uh, to be thankful for these afflictions that I never would have asked for. Uh, and we can be honest in our prayer, but yeah, there's, there's this, even in the praying, uh, we find ourselves coming before the Lord and that peace of God that passes understanding, guarding our hearts in Christ Jesus. Absolutely. So here's, here's one way we can think about what happens in prayer. What are we doing? Well, we're, we're praising God, we're adoring God, we're confessing our sins, we are uh, making requests But another thing that we could think about, well, what happens when we're praying is what exactly prayer itself is saying about our relationship with the Lord. You've heard, uh, what's his name, Marshall McLuhan. The medium is the message. What does it say that we engage in prayer other than there is a God who is dependable and we are dependent creatures? It says something about what we believe ourselves to be and who we believe ourselves to be. The very act of praying is, is in a sense, declarative to us. Now, there's, um, uh, J.I. Packer wrote this great little book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And in the introduction of that book, he starts to talk about, well, uh, what about people who say they don't believe that God is sovereign? And he says, no, 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 I can prove to you that you believe that God is sovereign, and here's how I'll prove it to you. You're a Christian, and if you're a Christian, you pray. And so if you pray, that means that you believe God is able to to do things in the world that he's created. You believe, at least on some level, that God is sovereign, and he has sway, uh, and you expect him to intervene. That's that's what your praying says about what you believe about God. And it does the same thing in our uh, gathering together. Um, So Hebrews chapter 7 uh, it says, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So when we go to the Lord and we make requests of the Lord, what are we saying? We're saying, you are superior and I am inferior. It is a humbling aspect of our faith to come before the Lord. And it, it's part of our corporate worship as well as our private worship that we do that. That we humble ourselves, that we say that the Lord is, uh, is good and right and true. Uh, it's also when we, when we pray... Um, through the mediation of Christ. Here's what uh, the confession says, the catechism. prayers an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ. So we don't dare come before the Lord without a mediator. Uh, that, that's suicide, uh, to come before the Lord in our sin without someone to cleanse our sin and to stand in our stead between God and man. Uh, and when we come in the name of Christ, that's saying something about what we believe about Jesus and what he's done and who he is. Can you think about anything else that, that the act of praying might say about what we're doing? Teresa, did you want to add to that? Okay. Yes. hmm mm-hmm. Well, why pray? One, because he's commanded us to. Uh, and two, I would say that the Lord has ordained that he will use and answer, legitimately answer the prayers of his people, uh, but he, he uses those prayers as part of his purposes. He's ordained that he will work as his people pray. And, and the praying is, is part of his foreordination as well, I would say. Um, and for just the purposes that we're thinking about, we'll talk in a little bit, or maybe we'll talk about it now, this idea of, of prayer as a means of grace. This is a very Presbyterian thing that you hear Presbyterians say. We talk about the means of grace. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption? We think of all sorts of things that redemption gives us, uh, namely, in this life, justification, adoption, sanctification. And the Westminster talks about, well, prayer is one of the means uh, that God uses to apply these things to his people. So we grow in the grace of adoption as the Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are sons of God. That's a good thing. That's that's God's grace to us. Uh, And we come to him and we recognize that he is our Father and all things ought to be received from his hand. That's why we pray. Because we grow in these things. And he hears them and he does answer. And he answers according to his own will. Uh, But it's part of what he's doing in his people. We grow in sanctification. Uh, As we go in prayer, uh, and maybe you've prayed a wrong prayer sometimes, asking for things that you ought not to pray, and the Lord takes you through a series of conviction about where your desires are and where they ought to be. And through your praying, he he draws you into uh, more and more sanctification. And and this is a process that God's people are going through. Uh, Henry said the same thing. Uh, Matthew Henry, in in the introduction to a method for prayer, he says, not that we move God, but that we are moving ourselves, uh, that that we are being moved in prayer. That's a big part of why we pray. But yes, the Lord actually does answer prayer. You think of Moses' intercession for the people in the wilderness. Uh, And the Lord says, I'm going to wipe them out. Uh, And Moses prays, and the Lord says, all right, I won't wipe them out. Well, was God actually going to wipe them out? Well, he told Moses he was going to wipe them out. Uh, We can only take God at his word. Uh, and he then says, well, he won't because Moses interceded. Um, Yet we find in in 1 Samuel that God is not like man who will repent and and change back and and turn, Uh, that God is the same yesterday and today and forever, that his purposes are the same throughout all times. Uh, And So I would read that and say, well, God ordained that Moses would intercede and Moses would stand in that gap and we'd have a picture of who Christ is, and that's good for Moses, it's good for the people, uh, it's good for all of us to look back and see these things, and to be encouraged in prayer that, that the Lord actually does hear, uh, Although, no, I, I don't expect that when I pray, God's going to change his course and say, no, I wasn't going to do that, but since you asked, uh, you know, I, I think, yeah, it's Matt. It's Matt. Yeah, it, it, it's Matt. Uh, who am I that the Lord should, should listen to me, uh, except that by his grace, he calls me his son through Jesus, and he is my loving father, and, and he... He loves to hear my prayers and to answer those things according to his good will. This, this is a hard subject to wrap our minds around. Uh, there's a great little book called, If God Already Knows, Why Pray? And I forget who wrote that book, uh, but it goes into a lot of detail. And the whole thing is about that question. Well, if God already knows what's going to happen, if, if you know we Presbyterians, we Reformed folks, believe that God is absolutely sovereign, what's the point? Um, it's interesting, again, to think about this interplay between prayer and sovereignty. Uh, there was an old saying, um, I can't remember where I heard it now, um, but it used to be that, that in uh, ministry and evangelism and missions, uh, you'd do two things. You'd pray like a Presbyterian, and you'd evangelize like an Arminian. Uh, that, and I don't know how accurate this is, but the, the idea was, you know, those Presbyterians, the ones who really believe in God's sovereignty, they, they pray fervently, uh, and the ones who believe in man's free will, well, they evangelize an awful lot, um, and, I, and I don't think that's precisely true, but, but all of those stereotypes have some kernel of truth behind them, and, and historically, Presbyterians are known as people who pray, because we believe that God is sovereign, so that's a, oh, that's a big, long question, uh, and we could probably go further and further. Jay? Yeah, oh man, whom, what's the outcome? What's your goal? Yep. I mean, a yeah, um, and, and it's very it's huge. Yep.
1: Trying to proclaim what is reality. Like there's a bigger reality than what we're talking about. But that is active. Mm-hmm. Right? And the the activity comes from the Holy Spirit which confirms uh the faith that He provides us. Mm-hmm. Right? That whole chain is one
0: where the prayer itself or the praying itself is to confirm the Holy Spirit's work in life. hmm mm-hmm. Absolutely. So two points you're making there. One, Jay, uh, yeah, prayer is everywhere. Uh, it is a function of natural religion. Uh, when you read Romans 1, uh, and it talks about men suppressing the truth of God and, and being given over, uh, you can look, you know, we talked last time about music being in almost every culture, in every culture. Um, you know, everywhere that you find humans, you find them praying to someone or something. Maybe in a rudimentary level, but, but it's that sort of innate sense uh, of the creator-creation distinction, and you find people trying to suppress that, uh, which is why we talk about foxhole prayers. I don't believe in that sort of thing, but when you're in that situation, all of a sudden, yeah, I said a little prayer. I don't know why, I don't know to whom, but that was the impulse of my heart, was a, I need help from somebody. Uh, and so you see this as a function of natural religion just in the heart of man Um, but you see it perfected as God reveals himself and reveals himself in Christ and actually tells us the way that we can come before him. Take a look at your your handouts again. Uh, Confession of Faith, Chapter 21, Section 3. Prayer, with thanksgiving, being one special part of religious worship, is by God required of all men. And that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, according to his will. So lots of people pray. Not everyone is uh, received by the Lord in their prayers. Uh, And we think of Isaiah. Uh, What does he say in um, chapter 59? The Lord's arm is not too short, uh, nor is his ear too dull that he cannot save. But your sins have hidden his face from you, so that your prayers are not answered. Uh, and so there's this barrier of sin between man and God. And it clouds our minds, it clouds our understanding of who God is and how we ought to worship him. And so he sends Christ to give us mediation and to open the way into the, the holy of holies where God is, where we can go before him, to open this new and living way by his flesh. He also gives his spirit to work in our hearts. And that's the other point that you raised there, Jay. But What's happening when we are praying? Well, it's a Trinitarian experience. It is God's people praying, and we don't always know how to pray as we ought. Isn't that what Romans tells us? It says Romans chapter 8. In fact, why don't you turn there with me? Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, and then jumping down to verse 26. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. When we cry to the Lord in prayer, we cry through the person of the spirit. We receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Then jump down to verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of, what, of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now it's interesting in this passage that there are three groanings listed. There's the groaning of creation, which was subjected to futility. There's the groaning of our hearts as we face difficulties and trials in this life. And there's the groaning of the Spirit within us. This is part of the Spirit attuning our hearts and our desires to what the will of the Lord is. He teaches us how to groan correctly. There are lots of things that make us groan in this life and lots of trials that we go through and say, oh, man, I had to do so-and-so this week or my boss is doing whatever. But there are godly groanings when we look and we see sin and trial and death and disease and all these things that are arrayed against God's perfect plan for his people to be redeemed in body and soul and to be joined to him in the separation that we have. And suddenly we look at the world in a different way and we groan about different things than we used to groan about. This is the Spirit working in our hearts through prayer, working in our hearts by the Spirit through the Son, to present our prayers to God the Father. It's a Trinitarian experience. What is worship when we come together? Not just in our own private prayer closets, but what is worship when we come together if it's not communion with the living God? That we should come and and be with him. That's the picture of, of God's communion with his people in the Old Testament, the tabernacle. Why? So God would dwell with his people And then we look at the temple, and the same thing, that God will dwell here among his people, and they'll be gathered to him at least a few times a year. Well, they'll come into his presence and get to interact in some meaningful way, and then we look to Revelation, and we come before him, and we see him in the glory of his presence, and we stand before his face, and we have this small picture of that communion with the Lord now. It's interesting, the um, the idea of uh, God's house, his temple, being a house of prayer, is incredibly important in scripture, but it only shows up in two places. Literarily, it shows up in four places, but but literally, it shows up twice. Isaiah foretells it in Isaiah chapter 56, and you can go and look at it, Uh, but it's this picture of the temple being a house of prayer for all the nations, but something that's not yet realized. That's an eschatological vision, we would call it, a vision of the end times. What will it be uh, when when all these things and God's kingdom is fulfilled in power and might? Well, God's temple will be a house of prayer for all the nations. And then Jesus comes and he clears out the temple and he chastises uh, the Pharisees and the Jews and and those who were selling in the temple. And he says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations uh, and and you've turned it into a den of robbers. You're not using it for what it's supposed to be used for. And even as we wait for that kingdom to be uh, brought in and ushered in in power and glory and fullness, Part of what we're doing when we gather together is getting a taste of that because we're communing with the Lord in prayer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's what's happening when we pray. I have gone way longer uh, than I meant to, and I've got two other big points to talk about. Would anybody mind if we continue this discussion of prayer next week instead of jumping into the next element? Would that be all right? Rob says no, Uh, and I believe you've been overruled. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So in, that, in the previous passage, it says, well, spirit and the Spirit yep. intercedes. And later, he talks about Christ uh, interceding uh, on our behalf. Yeah. Uh, so the He is the subject of the Yeah. So in the ESV, at least, that last He, uh, I think they take some interpretive liberty and they translate it as the Spirit to show us that, that it is probably still talking about the Spirit. Yeah. Um, I think it is a Trinitarian emphasis, though. Um, Where is it? 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 2, the end of that chapter. It's talking about the spiritual person and the natural person and understanding the things of God and the natural man can't. It says, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. How do we have the mind of Christ? Well, by the Spirit working in us. And you can read the rest of that passage. Uh, the spiritual person has the mind of Christ, uh, and uh, it speaks of, um, oh, where is it? Verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And so if the Spirit's in us, he's revealing God's heart to us uh, and praying through us, in a sense, in accord with with who God is in his person uh, and what he's done for us. Hopefully that that clarifies it. I I think that last one is referencing the Spirit making intercession. It does say in Hebrews that Christ always lives to make intercession for the saints. Uh, It says that his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Uh, So it does speak of Christ interceding for us. Uh, but as far as God working in his people, uh, I think we would say it's the Holy Spirit and his power working in us to pray. Well, later in before, yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, if you're going to parse the Trinity, good luck for you. Uh, let me know how that goes. Hey, let's end in prayer, and and we'll come back and wrap this up just quickly next time, and then the next element we're going to look at uh, is the ministry of the Word. So uh, let's pray together.